Hey, this is Mackenzie, host of Glitter and Doom, and I just wanted to let you know that this is the last episode of our first season. We'll be back in April with season two, so if you want to make sure not to miss an episode, go ahead and click the subscribe button. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a review. Thanks for listening. Tom Lehrer, a musical satirist who had his heyday in the 50s and 60s, famously said that political satire became obsolete when Henry Kissinger was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. That makes sense to me. Satire involves exaggeration, broadening a situation so that its ridiculousness is laid bare. Like, on its face, the fact that Protestants and Catholics interpret the Bible in different ways and have fought wars over it doesn't seem so ludicrous. But in Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift writes about two groups of Lilliputians who have differing interpretations of a sacred text. This text commands true believers to break their eggs at the convenient end. One faction decides the convenient end is the big end, the other favors the small end, and they kill each other about it. Through exaggeration and a change of scenery, Swift makes you go, oh yeah, Christian sectarianism is absurd. But the very notion of Henry Kissinger being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, or Rush Limbaugh receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom, to use a more contemporary example, is inherently so rife with irony and absurdity that it is unsatirizable. Where do you go when reality reads like the onion? Does satire still have a role to play? Dave Eggers says yes. His new book, The Captain and the Glory, follows the grim misadventures of a narcissistic, incompetent sea captain steering a cruise ship called The Glory. He appoints as his first mate a super hot passenger whom he'd like to date, who also happens to be his daughter, and fires anyone who knows how to steer the ship. He commandeers the cafeteria whiteboard and replaces daily specials with misspelled proclamations like, Let's hear it for the firefighters. They are the real heroes. Also, I am a firefighter. And if you didn't vote for me, maybe you will be killed? Before long, he and his supporters are throwing dark-skinned passengers overboard to chance of drown the brown. The metaphor isn't subtle, but then again, these aren't subtle times. I sat down with Eggers to talk about Trump rallies, the village people, and how only billionaires can save us now. All right, well, Dave Eggers, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's good to talk to you. You have been reporting on Trump rallies since 2016, and you're primarily known for your books. But what was it about what was happening in our country that made you want to start doing this type of reporting? Well, I, I think like a lot of people who were not Trump supporters, I think it was a bit bewildering sometimes to see the level of support he was attracting. And I had to go and see it for myself. I went to the first one in August of 2016 in Sacramento. And this was at a time when nobody really thought he could win. Because the crowd at that rally was more diverse than I thought, I came away thinking that he very well could win. That must have been the saddest I told you so of your life when he won in 2016. Yeah, I was in D.C. I was actually uh, 
just by chance. I didn't go to D.C. to be there for the election, but I went to the Washington Post election night party, which really was, it wasn't quite Caligula, but it was um, very, it was very over the top. And the confluence and the overlap between what should be sort of a sober exercise in democracy and and this sort of carnival uh, nightclub Studio 54 sort of atmosphere was very bewildering and I think maybe pointed to some of the problems that we have as a nation uh, conflating celebrity and this very serious business of governing. I think we really need to look at ourselves and, and, and try more and more to sort of separate these different branches of of our lives that, you know, the electoral process and our vote for president is a deadly serious and completely unfun part of our lives um, that we should exercise with the gravest caution and deliberation. Maybe just a moratorium for the next, I don't know, 16 to 20 years on anyone who has had a reality television show or maybe we could just say a television show of any kind being able to um, secure the nomination. And I say that as a progressive as well, you know, when people are like, wouldn't it be great if Oprah or Marianne Williamson was to be the Democratic nominee? I'm like, can we just step back from people whose fame comes from um, not thinking about public policy or world geopolitics? We, we, we're a strange people in that way. And you don't see some of, well, in particular, like the Northern European democracies are very rarely electing former television uh, stars. Yeah, Angela Merkel would be terrible on television. Like, I would not watch her show. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't remember her having like a decorating show or, uh, you know, a car detailing show or um, German. Interiors with Angela. On this episode of Interiors with Angela, get ready for total transformation. Now the door to a new life is opening. The German chancellor has her work cut out for her as she takes on a cluttered ranch-style house stuck in the 70s. That, ladies and gentlemen, is not a pleasant position to be in, at least not for a German head of government. Angela has big plans to convert the tiny, closed-off kitchen into a combined open-floor-plan living space. Tear down walls of ignorance and narrow-mindedness, for nothing has to stay as it is. And to replace the William Morris wallpaper that has seen better days. I hope that is not an insult to you, the members of British Parliament. (laughs) But what will happen when she discovers that her clients want a look that is bohemian, not Bauhaus? I'm afraid they are in for a disappointment. Will she be able to convince them to adopt her clean and modern style? Then it will be obvious to everyone that I find myself caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. Okay, Angela. Tune in for all this and more on the next episode of Interiors with Angela. Surprise yourself with what is possible. So you started attending and reporting on Trump rallies since before he was elected. And your reporting on these rallies sometimes reads like satire. So this is from a piece that you wrote for The Guardian 
uh, in the wake of Hurricanes Irma and Harvey. Last Sunday, as Florida and Texas and Louisiana began to pick up the pieces, as funerals were held across the region and tens of thousands were struggling without electricity and clean water, when families were still living in shelters, Trump retweeted a gif showing him hitting a golf ball and knocking over Hillary Clinton. Like, something like that reads as if it is satirical fiction, but it is true. So I'm curious, did your reporting on these Trump rallies and Trump's actions as president, did that inspire you to write this work of satire, The Captain and the Glory? In a way, I almost had to forget all of the specifics of his tenure. And I had forgotten that passage that you just read. I mean, that was... I I was listening to it as if I'd never heard it because it's been supplanted by a thousand other unsatirizable moments. Shortly after he got elected, I was working two tracks. I was really, I was continuing to write as a journalist, but then so often I felt like I wasn't getting at the the deeper truths and and the heightened absurdity that I think only satire and sort of an allegory like this can really get at. And that's why fiction exists sometimes is because sometimes there's a larger truth. There's something sort of that can only be seen and put in when it's put in uh, stark relief. And um, I wrote a first sort of maybe half of the book, maybe three, four or five months after he got elected. And then I put it away and I just continued as a journalist thinking like, no, my job really is to cover these, cover the rallies, cover, talk to people, and also cover the effects of uh, his policies on immigrants and asylum seekers. And, but then I came back to it at a certain point thinking, you know what, maybe this really is, maybe this does have a place. It still fills a void of sort of explaining this in a way that only allegory can. You change the venue, you change the cast of characters a bit, you create a smaller universe with its own set of rules. And within that, you can tell a story that's both familiar and kind of uh, newly revealing. Would you mind reading a little bit from the book for us? Sure. Um, This is uh, the start of Chapter 8. After a few minutes, though, the captain grew bored. Standing alone on the bridge was boring, and the sea ahead was boring. It didn't move. The horizon was just the horizon, and the sun was just the sun, and there weren't even any clouds or storms to look at. Where were the whales? He saw no whales. Then he had an idea. He nudged the wheel a bit left and the entire ship listed leftward, which was both frightening and thrilling. He turned the wheel to the right and the totality of the ship and its uncountable passengers and their possessions all were sent rightward. In the cafeteria where the passengers were eating lunch, a thousand plates and glasses shattered. An elderly man was thrown from his chair, struck his head on the dessert cart, and died later that night. High above, the captain was elated by the riveting drama caused by the surprises of his steering. For the first time, he felt the power of the enormous ship and felt that he'd arrived at how to make an otherwise sterile experience, that of standing more or less alone on the sealed and secure bridge of a ship, feel viscerally alive. He was so filled with energy and inspiration that he decided to deface the photographs of all of the glory's previous captains. So much of the book tracks directly to events that actually happened, deportations, keeping kids in cages. How did you go about charting out 
the flow of this book? Did you start keeping a list of the carnival of absurdities? And like that passage that you read right there about where he's shifting to the left, shifting to the right, was that inspired by an actual news event? I didn't keep a list. I tried to sort of forget all the specifics of the day-to-day outrages and absurdities that we see and sort of try to get at a kind of a parallel story that you know conforms to the rules of what would happen on a ship what if a if a lunatic were in charge of uh the guiding of a vessel like this and trump is a very uh easily bored human that needs constant stimulation that thrives on chaos and conflict and i thought well how would that manifest with a captain because I did a lot of research into what it what captains do on ships now, and I actually have a few friends that were ship captains, and um, and so much of it is uneventful. If the if there isn't any you know storms or there aren't troubles, it, it you know the ship can can uh, uh, steer itself for a long time, and the captain very often is ceding a lot of his duties to the first mate and other navigators, and so. Um, I thought, well, that wouldn't do for Trump. He would grow so easily bored and he'd have to do something to make it exciting for himself, regardless of what suffering that caused to everyone below. Trump is not an empathetic person that cares deeply about the suffering of others. Um, And so as long as he's entertained, whatever happens below is immaterial. Our current reality reads like satire, And it's hard to cook up a story that is more absurd. Like there's a a subplot where the captain starts writing on the whiteboard in the cafeteria where normally you would find the day's specials, um, just whatever he thinks of. Uh, And some of those are no less absurd than actual tweets that President Trump has written. Was it hard to up the ante? Like, I imagine that a modest proposal wouldn't have worked quite so well if Britain's heads of state had actually suggested eating babies. And sometimes that is what it feels like in our current political reality. Like, where do you go from there? Well, I think a lot of it is just the change of venue. If I was trying to write a satire in D.C. with a guy occupying the White House, I don't think it would. uh, I wouldn't have gotten past page one because of all the reasons that you mentioned. And so because a cruise ship is so inherently absurd and comical, from the clothing to the pools and the, the, the Lido deck and the water slides and shuffleboard, everything about it is so silly. It makes for, I think, inherent comedy. And because it's sort of superficially silly, when things get darker in this story, um, and when his policies of throwing overboard all the unwanted or lesser than people in his eyes, uh, putting them in cages to discourage new arrivals, when it gets darker and more horrifying, I, I liked that tension between this benign or even celebratory silly atmosphere that you have on a carnival cruise line with this increasingly ghastly environment. I think that tension revealed the kind of uh, the uh, the tension that we live with every day. On on the surface, you have a 70-year-old man who dyes his hair and wears makeup and can't spell and um, is absurd on every superficial level. But his policies are, you know, are so punitive and cruel and uh, inhuman. Sometimes we we forget about it because of this this glittering absurdity that distracts us every day. 
On a previous episode of the show, we spoke with Adele Rodriguez, who is a Cuban-American illustrator. And you might have seen his work. He's responsible for some of the most iconic satirical magazine covers depicting Trump. He works a lot with Time magazine and Der Spiegel. Um, And when we asked him about how he chooses what to satirize, he said that certain things were off limits for him. Um, Making fun of somebody's appearance or their sexuality, for example. I'm curious about if there are any aspects of Trump that you felt like you didn't want to touch or were cheap shots. Um, No, there was a, I felt no constraint whatsoever. In terms of satirizing Trump, no, there's no, there are no uh, boundaries, at least for me. I think that he has not earned any safe space for himself. I'm, I'm more careful when it comes to everyday Trump supporters, so many of whom I've met, and they are all complex human beings with very nuanced and interesting opinions. Um, I sit in the parking lot sometimes for three hours with uh, with the Trump supporters waiting to get into these venues, and I get to know them and like them and feel like, you know, so many ways they're reasonable people. And... Um, and then the rally begins, and very often the same people that have had very nimble or nuanced opinions will chant, lock her up, lock her up, when Hillary's name is mentioned. Minutes before Trump comes out, there's dancing to YMCA, because there's always a lot of village people, a lot of Elton John, like disco music is always beforehand. These are celebratory events. <laughs> and then he'll come out and really say, uh, some very uh, dark things, and then he'll tell a lot of jokes, and then he'll, um, you know, villainize his opponents, and then he'll tell some more jokes, and it is this bizarre mixture of sort of mid-80s Andrew Dice Clay offensive comedy that people are just sort of gleefully laughing at, you know, with their hands over their mouths because they can't believe somebody just said that, and then at the same time, uh, they're supporting towering cruelty. This is a bit of a tangent, but you mentioned the music at the rallies. And in one of your pieces, you wrote that you have a suspicion that he's being punked and is not totally aware of it. Like the music choice after a rally where he talked about building his wall was you can't always get what you want. Talk to me a little bit about some of the more absurd uh, musical options that you've heard. Okay, so this rally at her in Hershey, I was writing down the music because it loops, and I was in the parking lot for three hours in the rain, and so I had nothing else to do but to note the music and the order of it. I would say 80% of it is Elton John, Village People, and Queen, and then you end up with a little bit of Survivor, Eye of the Tiger. There is once an hour, there's one country song. So even in rural Pennsylvania, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where on the radio on my way there all I heard was country or it was a lot of country music none of that is played there it is mostly gay British singers that would have no interest in having their music played at a Trump rally the last song that's played before he comes out is um, Tiny Dancer by Elton John (laughs) this is part of his campaign it's always Tiny Dancer, and the first song that always plays when he leaves the stage is You Can't Always Get What You Want. I always think that there's somebody in the campaign that is having a blast programming this music because Macho Man plays more than almost any other song. And 
over and over because they, it's a loop. So it's maybe a 28-minute loop that keeps playing over and over. So you will hear, I heard uh, Macho Man 11 times. That is 11 times too many. The year is 1994. Despite Americans' disdain for sports where it's possible to tie, the U.S. is hosting the World Cup for the first time ever. And for the first time since 1938, Germany is fielding a unified team. The Berlin Wall has fallen, and there's no longer East Germany or West Germany, it's just Germany. West Germany is the defending World Cup champion, and with the addition of star East German players like Matthias Sommer and Ulf Kirsten, who it would later be revealed was a Stasi informer, hopes are high for the squad. It's a significant moment, one that can help heal the wounds of a nation torn apart by the Cold War. They need an anthem, a song that represents a new Germany, unified and strong, proud and dignified. And who better represents strength and dignity than the village people? The song the village people wrote for the German national team is called Far Away in America. The lyrics include, It's a tough man's paradise. Take a flight or ride in America. There's a rainbow in your eyes on the other side of America. There's a rainbow in your eyes on the other side of America. It's a land so great and wide, touching you deep inside. You'll get all you need in America tonight. Let me just describe the music video. We open with a montage. B-roll of the White House and the Statue of Liberty cut together with the German national team at a press conference dressed in green Adidas, I'm sorry, Adidas tracksuits. Then, as the first verse starts, we see the village people in a garage with a bunch of motorcycles and American flags. Did they ride these motorcycles from America to Germany? Perhaps. I'll remind you that this is 1994, a full 25 years after Macho Man and YMCA were released. So while the guys still look good, especially the Native American, they're definitely older. The Leather Daddy is more like Leather Dad hard cut, and we're no longer in the garage. We're now in a conference room with carpeting and track lighting. The pride of Germany is assembled on risers behind the village people, bopping their heads, clapping their hands off beat, and lip syncing along to far away in America. Let's go, they shout, pumping their fists as a construction worker in a crop top grapevines in front of them. Some of the soccer players are very into it. Some of them do not know the words. Hands down, the most enthusiastic member of the squad is their star striker, Jürgen Klinsmann, who was perhaps so inspired by this song that years later, he would move far away to America and coach the U.S. men's national team. I can't decide if it's super woke or super clueless to associate your national soccer team or your political rally with the village people. They are explicitly homosexual costumed as sexualized gay archetypes, singing about rainbows and being touched deep inside by new friends. Is it possible that the German team and Donald Trump don't know that? No, right? 
right? But then the crazy thing on this loop is that in the middle of it, there will be a recorded message from a very chipper sounding uh, woman that says, hi, you know, you've come to a Trump rally. This is a uh, democracy and, and Trump supports the First Amendment just as much as he supports the Second Amendment, she says. But this is a private event and protesters are not allowed in the venue. If you hear somebody protesting or see somebody, surround them, hold up your Trump placards and yell, Trump, 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 until security can come and take them away. What's your read on that? Do you feel like that is an incitement to violence or do you think that they're trying to keep people from being violent? Well, in the middle of that, she does say, do not under any circumstances touch a protester. Um, but it's still highly uh, um, intimidating and just on the precipice of violence, I think. And I think that that's the line that he has towed since the beginning. At this rally in Hershey, there was one young woman that did hold up a sign and was escorted out. And the mood of the place got really scary. I mean, and that's where these rallies can go from sort of a uh, kind of a comedy show um, to uh, something that could go very wrong very quickly. Um, and 10,000 people booed this woman. And then she was sort of perp walked all the way through the venue from the very front near the podium all the way to the very back. There was many doors that they could have taken in between, but somehow they took her all the way through the floor and then up through the uh, the cheap seats. And um, to me, it felt very um, on the very uh, edge of, uh, of real uh, violence, real, uh, real trouble. And if, if she had not been protected by three or four Secret Service uh, or other security people, I think it, it wouldn't have been so benign. In The Captain and the Glory, the supporters of the captain are known as the most foul. And this stems from a young girl on the ship who says that the glory deserves a captain who is not the most foul member of the ship. They adopt this expression for themselves, much as deplorables was adopted, and they dress up in different bird outfits and attend rallies. You know, now that you have these relationships, multi-year relationship with, with Trump supporters, have any of them read the book? Or if they haven't, how do you think they would respond to seeing themselves depicted in that way? Do you think that they would be offended or do you think that they would see some similarities or familiarity? The satire is not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily meant to convince the unconvinced. I'm not sure how many people Jonathan Swift convinced of in a, mon in a modest proposal or how many minds were changed by Orwell's uh, Animal Farm, for example. But it's meant f as a form of catharsis, I think, for um, the bewildered, you know? Um, the catharsis, in part, in a story like this comes from it having a recognizable shape, and in particular, it having an ending. And in this moment where we're all wondering when and how this is going to end, I gave myself the gift of an ending, and I'm hoping it's a gift for those of us who are 
also bewildered, baffled, concerned, and I'll spoil it enough to say it has a modestly happy ending after some uh, increasing horror as the book goes along. Um, because I do feel like we, we will get through this, and I think that our democracy is resilient enough. I, I, I don't agree with anybody that, that thinks it's so fragile that it will be altered permanently by this time. We do have so much in common, starting with a respect for um, uh, our higher ideals. I think that this is a, a weird fever, a virus that has to run its course, and um, I think it will. And just like any virus, it uh, sometimes uh, consumes itself and, and leaves the, the host weak, but on the way to recovery. I took that metaphor way too far with the virus in the middle of that. I was like, boy, where am I? I've got to dig my way out of this one. I know personally in my everyday life, I just keep on waiting for Trump to do something bad enough that people will wake up. Like I keep on waiting for my fellow Americans to snap out of this uh, virus induced haze, as you mentioned, and be like, oh, enough is enough. And it doesn't come. It's not coming. It hasn't come. Maybe it will never come. Um, and you also, you denied me that catharsis in the book. It does have a very hap happy and hopeful ending, but it actually took the captain, um, he makes his own decision to step away for everybody to snap out of this fever dream. Do you think that it will be up to Donald Trump to step away? or to say, actually, being president wasn't as fun as I thought it would be? Or do you have hope that the electorate will wake up of their own accord? To be, you know, really nuts and bolts about it, the Electoral College obviously favors Trump and favors Republicans on the national elections, like to a completely irrational and undemocratic degree. And until we abolish the Electoral College, we're going to have troubles. And we're going to continue to bizarrely give the presidency to the loser of the popular vote, which is another thing that anthropologists, sociologists, political scientists will be studying centuries from now with like just mouths agape. And um, But I think he's very tough to beat in 2020 for all the same reasons, but now he has an economy that is undeniably strong. So it's very hard to run against that. And I hear that from people, I heard it from people in Hershey, people who have more money in their pockets now than they did a few years ago. It's tough to beat those pocketbook issues. But yeah, I um, the end of this book, the captain takes off on his own uh, in a gilded lifeboat um, with all the amenities and no one ever sees him again. And I feel like that was the best reflection of the selfishness and complete utter disregard for anybody but himself that Trump exemplifies. I think that he went into the election as a candidate, as a on a lark, and as a way to increase his brand. He didn't have The Apprentice anymore. It was a way to stay in the public eye. He was as surprised as anybody that he won. And... Um, Weirdly, I think he finds the job more fun in some ways than he expected, and he loves to be adored at these rallies. And then when he's out, whether we vote him out or he leaves on uh, after another four years, I think he will go on to the next self-serving enterprise. 
And, you know, I had, I'd met some people that had the brilliant idea that what if you got the world's billionaires together and just bought him out? Like, what if you said, you know what, here's a hundred billion dollars. You'll be the world's wealthiest man or among them. Just leave. And I think that that was maybe the most brilliant and most practical solution to this, because I don't think that the presidency is more important to him than to be higher on that Forbes uh, list of the wealthiest. I agree. But unfortunately, I think the the billionaires are, are fans of his presidency, it seems like. Yeah, it depends on the billionaires. You know, I wonder if Bloomberg, Steyer, and others could get together, Soros, chip in, Buffett, and uh, create a uh, Trump buyout fund. I thought it was kind of an interesting proposal. I like that. Yeah. And also, they can sit at, he can sit at their table. There you go. I think that would... Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and he'd be friends with celebrities again. You know, like, we promise him that he, that he gets a cool table at... Uh, and that uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce will like him and uh, The Rock will wave to him across the room like that. I really do think that that's more important to him. He would be liked again by the people he considers cool. I like this. Let's consider this a direct appeal to all of the celebrities who listen to this show. Please take one for the team. It's a big ask, but please just give him a seat at your table and end this national nightmare. (laughs) Well said. Dave Eggers, thank you so much for chatting with me today. The book is The Captain and the Glory. People can find it wherever books are sold. Thanks a lot, Mackenzie. Thank you so much for listening to this accidentally German-heavy episode of Glitter and Doom. We'll be back in April with new episodes, giving you plenty of time to catch up on season one like our episodes featuring Dred Scott, Jamie Attenberg, Pope L., and Liana Fink. We'll see you in a few weeks, and remember to subscribe. Glitter and Doom is made by me, Mackenzie Fagan, Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al-Rahim, Naeem Van, and Eric Hogaseg. It is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.